The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me for the hour is Steve Penny, uh, the silver chartist himself. We're going to talk about macro and strategy and bridging the two in the context of what could be a fourth turning. So there's a lot of different topics we're going to hit on here. But Steve, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved in interested markets and precious metals in particular, and what are you doing now? Yeah, hey, Michael, thank you so much for inviting me on. Looking forward to a good conversation. Been following you for a little bit here, too, and enjoy the content you put out. Yeah, I've been um, investing in the metals and following the space for over a decade now. And uh, I think it all started with a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. And for those listeners who maybe haven't read that book, I, w- I would uh, highly recommend it. It'll probably change the way you see the world, but it's uh, a lot of history that just isn't talked about in schools. And when you learn that currency or money is borrowed into existence and then, you know, created at at will by a private entity, you know, these central banks, and that money is owed back with interest by on the backs of the taxpayer, you know, it kind of changes your worldview. So that was kind of what started me down this rabbit hole of, you know, learning more about the global financial system, and then not only how it works, but how to profit from it. Because, you know, there's plenty of opportunity here too. When when you understand how the system, how the game works, let's talk about um, your own journey for a bit of time here. How did you get involved in technical analysis and trading, and how did you end up forming kind of your own approach towards looking at how to buy and when to buy? Yeah, a lot of people think I'm only a technical analyst, but my journey really started in learning all about the fundamentals. You know, it was probably back in 2007, 2008. That whole financial crisis really uh, woke me up, and you know, I, I was, I would spend hours a day studying and reading, and I, I still do do that. But what I learned when I was introduced to technical analysis uh, about 10 years ago is that there's more information density on a chart. You know, you can spend hours and hours reading one guy's opinion, and then you go read someone else's opinion. And sometimes, you, you know, you can have very t- two well-reasoned opinions, and both people are right, just in different time frames. Well, technical analysis is a way for me to sift through the noise and you know, actually make money in the markets with, you know, much less effort and less time. So that that was about 10 years ago that I began becoming immersed in a technical analysis. And, uh, you know, it's led me to where I am now. I run a silverchartist.com. It's a community of like-minded investors who are invested in hard assets, silver, uranium, platinum, gold, battery metals. And we primarily use technical analysis. I like to say fundamentals tell me what to buy and technicals tell me when to buy and when to sell. So I'd, uh, I put out a tweet last week that went a little bit viral. I said, 
unpopular opinion, 99% of technical analysis is utter bullshit. And <laughs> I, saw I that. said that, right? And, and it's because I, I have this, this kind of joke I'm putting out there, which is that I'm going to war with the squigglies, right? This kind of squiggle lines that, yeah, so listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in technical analysis, but I think there's a lot of bullshit that's out there when it comes yeah, to Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think people yeah, use it wrong. Right. And, and, and they don't really backtest it, which we can get into. But, but then somebody actually correctly said, okay, but why, why just say it's technical analysis? You can say, make the same argument about, fundamental analysis or economic analysis right it's like most things you know they sound good and they look logical right. and reasonable but yeah you know, they don't actually have any pretty good power so i say that in the context of you started off on the fundamental side got to the technical side you're focusing on you know precious metals what works and what doesn't let's let's kind of get to the question of how do you know what's noise and what's not because this is i think where Fintwit really gets itself confused. Mm -hmm. Agree. Yeah. So first of all, agree with everything you said there. And what I chimed in and said, yeah, it's misused. Everyone wants to know, like, what's the latest prediction, right? And the best technical analyst might be right 60% of the time using purely technicals. And that's pretty good. That gives you an edge in the market. But what it also allows you to do, it it gives you a slight edge in the market. But then you can manage risk. So you can find asymmetric opportunities and allow you to place stop losses. So like I'm, I'm, actually, I'm a trader and an investor. So when I trade, I'm looking for setups where my upside potential is at least two times the size of my uh, downside risk. And I can use technicals to identify, you know, when we have pullbacks to support, place a tight stop, tight stop loss below that. So it allows you to manage risk, not just uh, predictions. And it also allows you to identify upside targets. So, you know, technical ana- analysis isn't like everyone, like I said, everyone wants to know what, what's the prediction for the future? What's gold going to do next week? Yeah, it's a valuable tool, but it, the most valuable tool of technicals is allowing you to manage risk and, um, you know, identify asymmetric setups. Do you find that focusing on on the metals space, the mining space, the uranium space, kind of the, the physical end of things, that mm-hmm. that opportunity set is better suited towards technicals and risk management, maybe from the angle of risk management, the reason I'm, I'm going in that direction is, you know, when you've got things which you can't really properly value or based on narrative and hype that you can't mm-hmm. touch, like metaverse, right, the the charts are going to be purely a function of imagination, right, as opposed <laughs> to something that's grounded in something which is real. Yeah, I guess um, that's a valid point. Going back to my my original statement of I like fundamentals tell me what to buy, technicals tell me when to buy and when to sell. You know, that might tr- be a good segue into the fundamental thesis for investing in hard assets. I mean, if you look at a ratio of commodities, the CRV index against the Dow or the S&P 500, you can go back almost uh, 100 years and you're not going to find hard assets so undervalued, a time when hard assets were so undervalued relative to paper assets, stocks and bonds and things like that. So there's a huge fundamental case to be made for hard assets right now. And then using technicals can help you to navigate because it's they're very wild markets, right? Of course they are. So y- you can use technicals to navigate, you know, the markets because you don't want to just sit and buy and hold these investments because they're cyclical. You know, <laughs> that's how people get burned. You need a strategy. And you know, for me, technicals is my edge in the market. Yeah, I, th- I think um, if we think about how does a macro mindset factor into technicals, I- I'd argue that identifying the macro regime helps you determine what things to apply the technicals to. In other words, it defines your your opportunity set, you know, depending upon the cycle that you're in. So let's talk about your, from your vantage point, broadly speaking, why does the cycle, aside from, you know, and I, I agree with you on commodities and the ratio of, you know, mm-hmm. commodities to equities, right? Where are we in, in kind of a multi-year cycle? Why is it that, and a lot of people 
will make the argument we're in this era of commodities running mm-hmm. because of underinvestment. Is there more to the story than just that? Um, yes. And <laughs> if that's the case, then how early are we in that process? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, so you bring up a good point. Yeah, commodities have been underinvested in for decades, and the world is going to need a lot more of these hard assets. I mean, if you look at this green revolution, whatever you want to call it, if the world just needs a fraction, a small fraction of the amount of copper demand that's projected over the next 10 years, the, co- the price of copper is going to have to rise. You could say the same thing about uranium. But there's more to it than that. It also ties into you know, the, the, the bond market as well. I believe March of 2020 marked the end of a 40-year bull market in bonds. That doesn't mean we can't rally here and interest rates come back down. In fact, I kind of expect that. But I think the 40-year bull market in bonds is over. And you know, I think that's going to be also a tailwind for hard assets, namely silver and gold primarily, but also copper, uranium, platinum, things like that as well. You mentioned via DM that you know, part of the macro discussion uh, that you wanted to get into was around the fourth turning. And I actually had uh, Mayor Glenn Jacobs, who I had on a Twitter space, uh, send me a DM just saying, you know, I see you're going to be talking about the fourth turning. That was a book that was influential to him. A lot of people use that term fourth turning, but I don't know if that many people really understand what the thesis behind the fourth turning is. So first explain what the fourth turning is you know, to the extent that you're comfortable in. How does that factor into a thesis around commodities? Well, yeah, it's, it's been a that book's that book was written a few decades ago by William Strauss and Neil Howe, and it's been proven to be very prophetic in how it's played out. And the basic thesis of the book is that the 2020s are a, a period of time where all of these cycles converge, and really none of them are good, to be honest. Uh, you've got like the civil unrest cycle, the economic collapse cycle. I don't know if that's the word they use, but the war cycle. All of these cycles are converging right here, right now. And coincidentally, we see that actually happening. And you know, I, one of the hallmarks of that thesis that jumps out to me is loss of faith in institutions. And we see that playing out before our very eyes, whether it's the banking system, the, the medical system, the education system, all of these things. People are losing faith in these institutions. And you know, in times of turmoil, and especially when people lose faith in their government, you know, gold and silver tend to benefit. So that's kind of where I was going with that. That, that ties into the precious metals thesis. And you know, I'm not one of these people saying, hey, uh, a, a lot of precious metals enthusiasts, we'll say, call it that. When they learn about these things, they tend to just go all in and not only go all in in those sectors, but go all in on like the risk, riskiest aspects of those sectors, you know, go all in on explorers and developers, where I, I take a more balanced approach to, you know, crafting a strategy around that. But that's a long-winded answer around the fourth turning. The loss of faith in institutions is the big one that I see unfolding right before our eyes right here, right now. And, and presumably that that the natural extension to that is loss of faith in in uh, the reserve currency. Now, I'm a l- skeptical of yep. a lot of the doom and gloom around the dollar, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it just it's, I think it's very hard to unseat the dollar as the reserve currency. Sure. There's a lot of narratives that sound really convincing, but yep. how do you think about that dynamic? Because presumably part of you know a, a hard asset mindset is a belief that 
you know, the soft asset, which is fiat, uh, it becomes less, less important. Yeah. So first of all, the dollar doesn't need to go away or go to zero for silver and gold to have exceptionally strong, an exceptionally strong bull market in the years ahead. And I agree with you. I don't think the dollar is going away tomorrow. I mean, it's probably more like a 10, maybe 10 plus year transition. And, you know, I think when you talk about the reserve currency status of the dollar, you know, people kind of conflate a payment currency with a reserve currency. Yeah, there's all this, these headlines around uh, payment currencies. And of course, that's, that is bearish for the dollar, but it's also not like an existential threat to the dollar, the payment currency. People still, you know, nations still need a place to park, you know, great amounts of wealth. And right now, the US dollar and the treasury market is the only market that can do that. But that said, we, there's no denying the trend away from the dollar. I mean, if you look at dollars as a percentage of reserve assets, it's it's steadily dropped. It's been slow, but it's slowly declining. So it, it reminds me of like an empire in decline. If you look at the when um, the pound sterling lost its reserve currency status, that was like a 30-year process from 1914 to 1944. So I think we're seeing something similar with the dollar. So I'm not one of these guys saying, hey, the dollar is going to just vanish tomorrow, although it could happen. I mean, some kind of extraneous event could you know, could happen. But regardless, the, the next 10 plus years, I see as the dollar loses that reserve currency status, less and less payments are settled in the dollar. You know, that's just a bit, another big tailwind for hard assets and precious metals. And, and along the way, there's going to be, for lack of a better way of saying it, manipulation to try and counter that, right? And, yeah. and obfuscation to try to counter that by authorities, which in turn will make the the loss of faith even more entrenched right it's like well if you can't trust your institutions now wait till you start realizing that they've been lying to you about their mark-to-market assets right like we're seeing with some of these banks but as you think through trading and and uh, investing how do you think about implementing or marrying the macro mindset with a portfolio the reason i'm saying that is you and i both know everybody talks about macro most of this macro, I'm sorry to say it, is largely bullshit in terms of what you can actually do with it. <laughs> well, really, it's like, okay, so everyone talks about the CPI and what the Fed's going to do. It's like, okay, tell me, tell me when to buy and when to sell. Right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, is there any sort of real validity? So, you know, yes, you have to keep that macro you know, context in the background, but how do you bridge that gap with what you're actually doing in a portfolio? Yeah, so let's go big to small. And this kind of ties into your previous question. I want to say this before. I think most of your listeners understand this, but if you don't, I think this is critical that every single, not just investor, but person understands the math uh, behind the situation we're in right now here in the United States, but similar situation in countries around the world. We're $31 trillion in debt. That doesn't count unfunded contingent liabilities. That is mathematically impossible to repay, I would argue. For every 1% interest rise in interest rates, that's about 300 and something billion dollars in interest expenses that is going to have to be paid every year. So if interest rates rose by, let's just say 5%, you know, that's another, what, $1.5 trillion in interest payments. So as the, the debt continues to grow, I don't think anyone thinks the debt's not going to continue to grow. We're approaching a point where all of the, all, all, every, literally every single tax dollar goes towards paying interest on the debt. You can argue about where that point is. You know, is it five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road? And the variable in that equation is interest rates. So that's where we're headed. How does this, how does this situation end? How does it resolve itself? So I think that's something everyone needs to wrestle with. And then you, if you agree with that, what I'm saying, now how do you craft a strategy around it? And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go all in on hard assets. So for me, the, the thought process with crafting a strategy is, number one, what percentage of my portfolio do I want to allocate to these sectors, to hard assets? You know, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 50%. The, that's an individual question everyone has to answer. And then, you know, how do you want to allocate 
do you, do you want, like some people say, Hey, I want to put 20% of my uh, overall portfolio into um, precious metals. And then they go buy 20% of, uh, you know, uh, explorers and developers, <laughs> and then they lose half their money in a short period of time. So, you know, number one is uh, asset allocation. What percentage of your portfolio do you want allocated to those sectors? And then number two, how much do you want in, you know, the, the safer plays? How do you want to diversify jurisdictionally? How much do you want in royalty plays and things like that? And I, I could expand on that further if you like. Yeah. And it's also, I think, what percentage do you want to buy and hold versus actively trade? I mean, I think, you know, increasing that are you diversification comes from yeah. not just asset class, but but your your signals, your 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 strategies, your tactical approaches, right? If 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 the equivalent of idiosyncratic risk with a stock is false signals with a tactical signal, right? Then the more tactical signals you follow, right, in terms of portions of your portfolio, yes. at least in theory, right, the more robust and diversified that portion is and, and helps you diversify. So let's talk about some of the technical things that you tend to focus on, right? So what are some of your favorite indicators, what do you find tends to work? And probably more importantly, what tends to not work? Yeah, great question. And just to follow up on one of your comments there, for, for me, I take 10% of my overall trading portfolio and I, or my overall portfolio and I trade it. I trade the swings. The rest is more of a buy and hold strategy where I'm looking at ratios, ratio-based exit strategy for uh, you know my hard asset allocations. But as far as signals, over the past 10 years, I've learned that less is more. And I've really simplified my charts. I used to have all kinds of indicators on my charts. Right now, all I put on my chart is RSI, a 50-day moving average, a 200-day moving average. And sometimes I'll use a MACD. And that's all I need. And then I look for just basic chart patterns. And there's a lot of, what's the word, um, self-fulfilling prophecy in technical analysis. Like if a chart, if a pattern that everyone uses is obvious and it's very clear, well, then it almost has a self-fulfilling prophecy to it, where if, if you're drawing lines that cut through all kinds of price bars and it's not clean and no one else sees it but you, I mean, there's a very low probability that that pattern is going to work. So even, like I said, even the best patterns have about a 60% accuracy rate. So, you know, it's important to manage risk around that as well. So I use a 50-day, 200-day moving average, and I use just basic uh, chart patterns that everyone recognizes. Anyone who's looking at a chart is going to see what I'm seeing. I like to buy pullbacks to a rising 200-day moving average, especially if you see like a bullish consolidation pattern right above the 200-day moving average. I like um, bullish wedges. Some of the best traders I know only trade triangle patterns. And they're nice because they allow you to manage risk, right? You know, it's a very well-defined stop loss that you can place as well as upside targets. So th those are the indicators I use. You know, it's, um, it is amazing to me how people don't appreciate that simplicity is often what keeps you in the game because the that which is complex tends to blow you up, yes. right? So to your point of just having sort of focusing on a few indicators, I think you and I would probably agree on this. I've, I've made this point many times before that if you're going to be a really good trader in the long run, you probably want to focus on one or two things that might explain 40, 50% of why markets do what they do and accept the truth, which is that the rest is probably randomness. Then, you know, do what you, I you often see on Fintwit, which is people drawing 500 lines with, you know, <laughs> 20 different price targets, all of which looks really good, but it's complete nonsense. Yes. Yeah. C complexity outperforms or simplicity outperforms complexity over the long term. Complexity is seductive. People are drawn to those kind of things. But, you know, <laughs> the, the, I look at like um, institutional trading algorithms. You know, they, they almost every in, institutional trading al algorithm or high net worth individual is going to draw a 200-day moving average on their chart. That's a very significant line. It's simple. It's r literally that simple. But if you get a sharp pullback and RSI is oversold, 
and you're right above the 200-day moving average, there's a high probability that you're going to bounce there. It's simple, you know, uh, it's simple statistics. It can be as simple as that. You can start, if, if for someone who's brand new, I would say, hey, just start trading one or two patterns, and then you can gradually add more tools in your toolbox over time. Like, for, for example, um, leading up to the Fed meeting in January, you know, gold was overbought in multiple time frames, right up against clear resistance, and it had this bearish rising wedge pattern. And, you know, we shorted it. And then it pulled right back to the rising 200-day moving average. I mean, it dropped just a little bit below it. And then we went long again. And, you know, now here we are again, just uh, almost up near key resistance at 2089. So it, it doesn't have to be overly complicated. How do you think about volatility in the commodity space versus volatility with mining stocks, right? So for a long time, I still think this 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 is still out there as a, as a thought, right? People think, well, if gold is going to go up, the gold miners have to go up. And it's just not true. I mean, you know, they, right, there is a link, but it's not anywhere near as strong as people think. And mining stocks tend to be, I'd argue, far more volatile than the commodities. So, you know, in some ways it's like, well, if you're going to make a, a case for gold, why bother with the miners? Um, how do you think through sort of the um, the idea of, of trading commodities directly as opposed to playing derivative plays on the equity side? Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of commodity guys like to play the equity miners and producers, mm-hmm. but I often find they get very frustrated. Yeah, I think the mining stocks make great trading vehicles, but obviously, I mean, just history suggests they're poor long-term investments. There's no <laughs> there's no denying that. But if you if you time them right, I mean, you can make a lot of money very quickly. And again, that's where you need an edge. And for me, it's technicals. But you're right, just because the metal goes up doesn't mean the miners have to. Like, for example, you know, let's say the price of gold goes up 10%, but all their input costs go up by 20%, you know, oil and uh, natural gas and the things they use to run their mi- labor costs. Well, th- a, lot, a lot of times those things aren't factored in. I mean, I'm, I'm very bullish on the mining stocks right now. Don't get me wrong. But I think the safest way to play the sector is with exposure to the physical metals and, you know, with the exception of uranium. That's kind of a dumb joke, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I like to say, um, I'm, I joke around about to go buy a monster box of uranium eagles, but, um, uh, that comment was regard to like physical precious metals. I think that's the safest way to play the precious metals bull market for sure. And the mining stocks make great trading vehicles. Yeah. And when, also, I think when you, when you talk about trading vehicles, it's a question of sort of what's your time frame. It used to be that a trader might be trading for a multi-month period now you've got you know more and more intradays your dte type stuff when you when you say trading in the miners you know great trading vehicles what kind of time frame are you are you typically you know honed in on yeah for me i've got 90 percent of my account and i call it a long-term account and the exit strategy is based on ratios dow gold ratios gold to real estate ratios things like that with the trading account my target is typically five to thirty percent in five to thirty days don't always get that. I mean, that sounds pretty great, but that's easier said than done. But that's the goal. If you can get five to thirty percent in five to thirty days and just hit consistent singles in the trading account, my goal is not uh, to hit hit home runs. It's just consistent singles to generate monthly cash flow that can be cycled back into longer term investments. And I want to emphasize there: I trade ten percent of it because trading is risky. You know, you don't want to put all your money in a trading account and then have a bad month or a bad year. The be- even the best traders in the world lose money. <laughs> they have several months in a row where they lose money. So trading is risky. It's not for everyone. So for me, five to thirty percent in about five to thirty days is the goal. Since you uh, you mentioned uh, uranium, <laughs> I had uh, I did a Twitter space uh, with Brandon Monroe. Talk about uranium a little bit earlier today. The um, I have to say, I've been doing a number of these spaces with you know very very smart thoughtful guys, Justin Hugh and Kevin Bambro. Uh, I've had uh, Eric Sprott on as well, and 
Yeah, I'm I'm all in. I totally get the uranium argument. It makes a ton of sense, but it's a space that is just seems to be difficult to trade even from a technical perspective because when it runs, it runs a big way, but then you get whipsawed like crazy, even though you know all the bullish arguments are still there. Talk about just from your vantage point, why uranium and then how do you how do you manage through this? Because it's it's not an easily it's not an easy thing to trend trade, I'd argue. Yeah, and I agree with those points. So for me, when it comes to trading it, I have to adapt my style. Smaller position sizes, wider stop losses is my solution to that problem. But yeah, I and I saw that uh, Brandon Monroe space and you know he's brilliant. So I'm not going to attempt to, he, he, he knows infinitely more about it than I do. But for me, I, what I like about the sector is it's a pure supply demand story. The world's going to need a lot more uranium as nuclear reactors come online around the world. And the current price of $50 uranium is simply too low to incentivize the new production that's needed. It's a simple supply demand story. The world's going to need more uranium and the price is too low. That doesn't mean it won't be wild volatility along the way. Now, when it comes to trading this sector, I have a core position that I'm just going to hold until, you know, uh, I've got an exit strategy that I'm not necessarily trading. I don't have stop losses. But when I trade it, you're right, it's because it's more volatile, I'll tend to take a smaller position size and have a wider stop loss. That's how I mitigate that. And do you find that the uranium developers are, uh, miners are, are, are easier to trade than sort of the, the precious metals? Miners, I mean, what's what's sort of the difference in the two industry groups? No, I don't think they're easier to trade by any means. But you know, if you look at the silver and gold miners, it's about the most volatile sector you'll find, with the exception of uranium. Uranium is even more volatile. It's a smaller, thinner market than even silver miners. Uh, at last check, there was only maybe a hundred pure play uranium miners in the world, and most of them are very small market cap. So when these things move, they, I mean, they just move. So when it comes to, uh, I guess, not to overly talk about trading, because it's a smaller percentage of what I do, but like right now, I look at Cameco. You know, it's consolidating nicely right above its 200-day moving average. That's kind of like the big one to trade. It's the second biggest uh, uranium company in the world behind Kazatoprom. To me, that one looks pretty attractive right here. It's pulled back right to its 200-day moving average. The, the more thinly traded explorers, developers, um, they're kind of tough to trade unless you're really small position size because there's just not enough volume. So about some of the other um, things that you you tend to focus on that are like interesting positions to either overweight or maybe consider allocating to not financial advice, but you know, presumably you've got your watch list, you know, and there's some things that are starting to look more and more interesting. What's um, have, you, have there been any kind of newer, interesting themes that have been popping up that you think might get some, some traction? Yeah, I think uh, platinum is probably underappreciated right now. Uh, it's just starting to wake up. It's popped nicely the, the last couple of weeks here. It's up like 15% this month. But platinum is still extremely undervalued, and I don't hear very many people talk about platinum at all. To me, platinum, it's one of the most undervalued metals out there. If you look at the platinum to gold ratio, typically platinum trades at a premium to the price of gold. That's what it does probably 80%, 90% of the time. Well, right now, not only is it less than the price of gold, it's about half the price of gold. And I think a lot of that started back in 2014, if I remember right, with this Dieselgate scandal with Volkswagen and um, their emissions testing with catalytic converters. Uh, platinum's a big metal in uh, diesel catalytic converters. And you know, platinum sold off as a result of that, and rightfully so. But I think it got overdone to the downside. And all of the bullish catalysts for platinum are, are kind of being overlooked. Number one, I mean, money's going to be pouring into this hydrogen technology, whether you agree with it or not, or you think it's a viable alternative. Money is flowing into that, and it, that's going to require a lot more platinum. Also, investment demand for platinum, and also substitution. Like I said, platinum is used in catalytic converters, primarily in diesel vehicles, but it can also be substituted in just regular internal combustion 
combustion engines. And you can see substitution taking place. It's just starting to right now. Why use uh, palladium when platinum's almost half the price? So we're starting to see that. So all these potential drivers for platinum, and it's kind of off the radar. And, you know, I I like platinum a lot right here. Everybody, please make sure you follow Steve Penny, a silver chartist here on Twitter, and obviously check out his uh, research as well if you're interested. With all that said, let's go to some of the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The gold-silver ratio, I last check, I'm just doing this for memory, is about 80 to 1 which is historically skewed, meaning silver is historically undervalued relative to gold. And bull markets typically peak around a 15 to 1 ratio. So if we just return to a 15 to 1 ratio, you know that would mean silver would outperform gold by a factor of around five from current levels by the end of this bull market. And I think that's very likely to happen. Uh, of course, there's different ways that ratio could normalize. I mean, uh, gold could could go lower and silver moves up. Uh, they both move down, but silver moves down less. But I think the most likely scenario is both metals move higher and silver just outperforms by a wide margin in the next few years ahead. That said, it's much more volatile. Silver is extremely volatile. But I think a lot of people conflate volatility with risk. And to me, silver is much less risky than gold, even though I'm <laughs> I'm very bullish on gold. I think it's less risky, but it's going to be a much more volatile ride. So I'm looking for silver to outperform gold by a wide, wide margin in the years ahead. And another kind of interesting fact, too, for people who maybe don't follow the space too closely, silver is mined globally by, let me put it this way, um, th- about um, n- nine to one ratio. So for every one ounce of gold that's pulled out of the ground, nine ounces of silver are pulled out of the ground. So you could even make a case for a sub-15 to 1 gold ratio by the, by the time this bull market is over. And, and silver is consumed in industry where really most gold is just pulled out and it's kind of put in vault somewhere where silver is used. So I, I think a 15 to 1 gold-silver ratio by the time this bull market is over would not be surprising at all, even, even less as possible. I can share some general comments. I mean, I know most gold miners and silver miners do hedge silver miners included. Uh, I would assume uranium miners do too. Although, to be honest, I'm not sure exactly how they would do that because the futures market is just so thin. I, I am not an expert on the whole inner workings of the uranium market. So I'll, I'll say I'm going to pass on answering that one. But silver miners do hedge. There's a few that that uh, do it much so, you know, much less aggressively, I'll put it that way. Uh, First Majestic Silver, Endeavor Silver, uh, in the past when the price has been, let's call it artificially suppressed, not to go down that rabbit hole, but they'll actually hold back production and they'll hold on to their physical and wait for higher prices to sell it. That's a general answer. I don't have a specific answer for you. Speaking about holding, uh, I feel like with that uh, good transition to central banks uh, holding gold and a lot of the talk around price manipulation. Are are some of these things around this this sort of idea that silver is manipulated, do you find that there's an element of truth to this stuff? Do you find that it's a convenient excuse for those that believe in it to wait, you know, as, as sort of a reason, right, for a kind of a short silver squeeze. You know, I, I got to assume that if you're a trader, uh, you don't want to necessarily think that what you're trading is manipulated because that can really cloud your your judgment and your buy and sell signals. Yeah, really good question. Um, so I do think gold and silver are manipulated. And I think where the debate, the healthy debate lies in is in how, how much is it manipulated. And it's clear that they, I don't think they can manipulate the overall trend. If they could, silver wouldn't have ran from whatever it was, around $4 in 2000 to $50 in 2011. So I don't think they can manipulate the overall trend. I think it's undeniable that they, they do manipulate the short term. I mean, we've seen some of these bankers, JP Morgan bankers get there. I don't know if they were arrested. I think a couple of them were, you know, they've been found guilty on that. Count. So I think the case is closed that they do manipulate. It's just a question of to the, what extent. And the, I, can, I can see the motive 
for central banks and you know uh, central planners to do that because gold and silver are kind of like the alarm system to fiat currencies. Like, let's just say we woke up tomorrow and gold was up five hundred dollars an ounce. You know, people of the world would wake up and say, "What's going on with these fiat currencies?" And you know, obviously, central bankers don't want that. So that's a general answer to it. Oh, and as far as um, trading a, a commodity that's, that's manipulated, I think you can use that to your advantage. Like, for example, because the because I do believe they are manipulated, especially on a short term. You can use that to your advantage. So if you see extreme overbought conditions against clear resistance levels in silver, for example, with a bearish technical pattern, the, the bankers, the manipulators, quote unquote, see that as well. And it's you can just see it clear as day. Well, they're going to smack price down here. And you know the way they do that is by placing large, one of the ways they do this by placing large sell orders at illiquid times, like in the pre-market, for example, kind of get the ball rolling. And then once you know, the clear support levels are broken. Well, then the regular traders see that sell signal and, and hop in. So I guess hopefully that wasn't too long-winded of an answer. I, I also view that if, if it is manipulated to the long, over the long term, I see that as an advantage for the average retail investor because it gives you the opportunity to accumulate a valuable asset at a undervalued price, at a below fair market price. And all manipulations do fail. You know, if, if they are being manipulated, the overall trend, well, we know that can't last forever. They tried doing that in the 70s with the London Gold. It failed. So I, I don't I don't think too much about the manipulation. I don't let it factor into my daily trading or anything like that. But I, I think it does happen. Well, and in fairness, everything's manipulated. Right? Sure. <laughs> right. Fair, it's fair like, yeah, it's like well, you talk about the Fed all day long. What do you think the Fed's doing? Yeah. They were they were created to manipulate. I mean, yeah, we can we can obviously never never before in history as much as they have now. But I mean, everything's manipulated. I mean, there is no such thing as a as a true non-manipulated chart. Yeah. And 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 to, and to your point and I agree with you 100%. Um it is common in the precious metals community, you know, th- there's a lot of permobulls out there. I'm not one of them and they think price always goes up and every time it goes down, oh, it's manipulating. Manipulating. Well, m- maybe, but there's a clear bearish pattern and we're extremely overbought. I mean, profit taking is normal. Sharp sell-offs are normal in commodity bull markets. And silver is especially volatile because it's so thinly traded. So not every sharp sell-off is manipulation. So I, I can see your point there. During those, those... We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. sharp sell-offs do you do you say to yourself okay that's the time to accumulate do you consider going into cash do you short mm-hmm. I, I i the shorting part i want to focus on a little bit because i think this is um people seem to be of the mindset that if you're not bullish that means you should be shorting whatever thing that yeah. you're looking at but yeah you know, keep going back there's, there's so many risks with shorting because it, it's very path dependent that's not really worth doing that versus rotating to something else but you know if you're if you're bearish on a particular commodity what do you do about it or anything yeah really really good uh, point i want to make a, the distinction between shorting and hedging mechanically it's the same thing but it's a different you're doing it for a different reason so i've got a core portfolio that i'm not selling so if i have this large core portfolio and say silver and uh, then I put on a small short position. To me, that's a hedge. I'm just managing risk because I'm on a net basis. I'm long. I'm just short term hedge. Where 
when I look to short things, I, I do trade to the short side, but those are things that are in a downtrend. The the trend is your friend. So, you know, if I'm looking for a short trade, I'm looking for something that's trading below a declining moving average with a series of lower highs and lower lows. But that said, when our commodity sectors get overbought, extreme overbought against resistance, yeah, I take out hedging positions. These are small positions. We, we've done that a few times this year in the precious metals, and it's worked out well. And I'm, I'm pretty quick to cover those. You know, I don't want to get too cute holding a short position in something that's in an uptrend. Do you diversify outside of you know the, the commodity play? I mean, presumably you've got more than just that as kind of where you're putting your money to work. could be a bigger overweight. But where else do you invest outside of the commodity space? So I, for, for me, um, so I, I do fly part-time as an airline pilot, and we've got you know a 401k and stuff there. So there, you, know, you don't have too many options, but I look at uh, emerging markets are much cheaper. I think they're more undervalued fundamentally and uh, technically relative to U.S. markets. So I, I like foreign dividend-paying stocks, for example. If you look at a ratio of like EEM, the emerging markets ETF to the S&P 500, it's at like multi-decade lows. I mean, it's starting to come off that a little bit. But for my conventional, more conventional part of my portfolio, you know, I, I do like overseas markets better than U.S. markets. But I, I don't trade those at all. To me, that's just, I just buy and hold them. You know, that's for 40 years from now. Or maybe not 40 years from now. I'm 40 years old. So <laughs> let's call it 20 years from now. Please tell me when you're flying a plane that you're not on the Wi-Fi checking the... Uh... <laughs> I'm going to decline to answer that question. <laughs> like now, now I got to worry about my. Pilots, no, no, uh, you no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you. No, you don't. You don't have to worry about that. That, that. It's a good thing we don't have access to Wi-Fi up there. I'll put it that way. <laughs> There's no co-movement with emerging markets. You know, as everything kind of focused on large cap Fang and and all this stuff that just distorted market dynamics internally. So, you know, maybe that's why I should start loving it because I hate it so badly, right? I mean, you got to believe the cycles kick in, but I got to assume that if commodities are going to have a prolonged cycle, that emerging markets should, should by extension, benefit from it. But I don't know. It's been one of the most frustrating parts of the investable landscape by far. If you could hold one or the other for the next 25 years, if you don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but would you rather emerging markets? As opposed to what, commodities or... Or no, like you can hold the S and P, or you can hold uh, one of the emerging markets funds for twenty years. I, I, or there would be no, there's no doubt I'd hold the emerging markets. But the problem is, if you were when, when you're marked to market, the problem is the nature of emerging markets, like the nature of commodities, argues that you could have, you know, twenty four years of very suboptimal performance, and then the twenty fifth year it just hits it out of the park. Yeah, which is fine if you're going to be a true long term investor and close your eyes for twenty five years. And then wake up and have the returns. But if you're managing a portfolio that's marked to market that includes emerging markets during those one through 24 years of suboptimal returns, it doesn't matter. You're not going to make it to the 25th year because you're at, you're, yeah. you're, your client's not going to let you. Right. That's why it's such a maddening space. Yeah, it makes total sense. So we're, we're talking for me. I just plan to sit and hold up for 20, 25 years. And it's a, you know, just my retirement account. So it's different. We're using them for different reasons. You know, I'm not looking to make any short term, you know, in fact, I would love them, love to see them drop by 20, 30, 40%, because then I can accumulate more, more shares, you know, that I don't need for <laughs> 20 years from now. Yeah. So I'll answer the first part of the question first. My outlook for the rest of the year, I think we go higher. I think, uh, from a technical perspective, once we break above $2,089, that's the all time high in gold. There's a very bullish cup and handle pattern forming, and you can project out some measured move targets from there, that the most conservative of which is about $2,500, and the most bullish of which is about $4,000. 
So I'm, I'm looking for somewhere on $2,500 gold later this year. That said, we're getting a little over uh, technically stretched here. So, you know, some consolidation or even a pullback wouldn't be surprising at all. I think most of the pause narrative, I think everyone expects a pause after this next rate hike. And I think most of that's priced in. And then, you know, I think the market's going to wait to see, you know, is the Fed going to, I call it a 180. I think they've already pivoted by my definition, but a, a 180 where they go back to quantitative easing and uh, debt monetization, things like that. Once the market starts to sift that out, I think that's what could be the catalyst for $2,500 plus gold later this year. The bearish case, I mean, there's more at at play than just the Fed, but right now that's what everyone's watching. Like that's we're probably all sick and tired of talking about it, but that's that's the thing that affects uh, gold and silver right now more than anything. So the bearish case would be that uh, the Fed is more hawkish than people think, and you know maybe they're going to do two rate hikes and and not indicate at all that they're going to. you know, go back to um, more easy money later this year. So that, that's the bearish case. So, you know, the last thing I'd want to see is this run up towards 20, 2089, be technically stretched, and then the Fed come out and they're more bearish than everyone thinks. If uh, general equities have a sharp sell-off, yes, the, the metals will probably pull back sharply. However, they tend to rebound first. And I think that would, yeah. be, I think that would be short-lived if that were to happen. Like, look at March 2020. It was March 16th. 2020, yeah. if I right. I mean, silver dropped down to like $12, but within a few weeks, you know, it was back up by 30, 40% from those dead lows. So I think we could see something similar if that were to happen. Yeah, it could be crypto, it could be general equities and, um, and bonds, all of which are, I think, still remain overvalued. So, I mean, $3 trillion is a, a drop in the bucket when you're talking about a global market. I, I don't want to say that that's a lot of money. Uh, it's not a drop in the bucket, but... When you look at the size of the, you know, the equities markets, the bond market, just a small portion of that begins to say, "Hey, I want some exposure to uh, the metals." And it, it, it's going to take uh, generous investors and institutions to wake up to to say, "Hey, I just want a little bit of gold exposure." You know, if they just say, "Hey, I want three, four, five percent exposure to gold," that's enough to have a significant move on the price. You know, and th- things like the Silicon Valley Bank. I don't think this banking crisis is over. I mean, I think we're getting a, a brief respite here. But I mean, who, if you're over the FDIC insured limit and uh, you're looking for a place to a safe place just to park your money, I mean, gold has got to be an attractive option for a lot of people who previously never would have looked at it. Generalists, people who don't track, uh, you know, fiat currency and all this stuff. So I, I think that's coming in, you know, later this year and probably even beyond. Yeah, good, good question. Good to speak to you. But uh, yeah, it's a really good question. So basically, you're saying uh, when the precious metals pull back, the explorers and developers pull back more. But then when the metals rise, they don't tend to, you know, rise as much. So they tend to trend lower. And that's exactly right. That's why I don't I don't like the explorers and developers for me personally. I mean, that's a requires a unique skill set. You know, I'm I'm not a I, I don't evaluate. Um, you know, I'm not a geologist. I don't have that skill set. But what tends to happen in a bull market is first gold leads physical metal, then the uh, physical metal silver leads, then the mining, the larger cap mining stocks start to see inflows. And then the last thing to pop in a sustained bull market is the, the juniors and explorers. That just tends to be how it goes. So we haven't gotten there yet. So I would fully expect when this bull market resumes for the explorers and developers that are just beaten down to a pulp to play rapid catch up, and uh, you know, uh, outperform by a wide margin, but they'll they tend to be the last to move, and they're much more risky, as you said. 
So for me, that's that's one of the biggest mistakes I see people, precious metals investors make is have be overly allocated to explorers and developers. So that's, that's, that's my answer for that. Hopefully that's helpful for you. How do uh, people find out more about the kind of research you put out, uh, Steve? Where can people find you? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter at SilverChartist and then uh, SilverChartist.com. We've got a really cool community. Um, I see David Brady on the on the call here. He's I know you've talked to David Brady before. He's a contributor. He's on there on the site every day. Jeff Clark contributes. He's a, he's a great mining stock analyst. Kyle Heineman. It's a great community of people right there at silverchartist.com. It's a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Thank you, everybody, for joining. And thank you, Steve. Appreciate uh, your knowledge here. And thanks for the flexibility on, uh, on rescheduling this space. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.